Hi guys, it's Andy McDonald, physio and strength and conditioning coach, and welcome to the Informed Performance Podcast. On today's episode, fellow host of the show, Ben Ashworth, will be taking the reins again, having a chat with Pordy Roach from Arsenal. Pordy is the lead S&C for Arsenal's under-23 and under-18 groups. Today's episode of the Informed Performance Podcast has been sponsored by Vald Performance, makers of the Nordboard. The Nordboard has become the gold standard for assessing field-based hamstring strength. By combining advanced sensors, real-time data visualizations, and cloud analytics, the Nordboard helps practitioners to accurately measure, monitor, and train individuals' hamstring strength or imbalances. To learn more about the Nordboard, visit our sponsor, volperformance.com. You're listening to the Informed Performance Podcast, and before I hand over to Ben for today's episode, I just want to announce that in January, we're excited at Informed Performance to be launching a pilot issue of a digital magazine for you to enjoy. The magazine will feature performance and sports medicine insights from some leading minds in our industry, much like on our podcast. Head over to our Instagram page, Informed Performance, or our Twitter page, at InformPod, and follow us to keep up to date. We will be running a competition giveaway that is soon to be announced in association with the magazine's launch. And by following us, you'll be kept up to date with the release of the magazine itself. So head on over to our social media channels to get all the news and latest updates. It's time for today's episode of the Informed Performance Podcast. So I'll hand over to Ben Ashworth. And here's today's episode between Ben and Pordy Roach. Hello, today it's uh, Informed Performance Podcast and we're really pleased to have Pordy Roach with us today. Um, I've known Pordy from working with him at Arsenal and um, we've had a lot of water cooler conversations over the years. Um, someone who I really respect and um, you know I've listened to him speak a few times, but um, really excited to have you on, the, on today, Pordy. Welcome to the show, mate. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me and Thank you to the listeners for uh, tuning in. That's great, mate. Well, I just want to sort of um, give you an opportunity to describe for the listeners who don't know you, your career to date and, you know, a brief summary of where you are today and sort of where you've come from. Um, so I'm currently the lead under 23 and under 18 uh, strength and conditioning coach at Arsenal. Um, it's a position I've held for the last four seasons. I'm going into my eighth season at Arsenal. Um, for the first four seasons, I was the lead under nine to under 16 uh, strength and conditioning coach. So kind of overseeing and implementing um, the plan with the, the very young players right up to the early, early professional players. Uh, prior to that, the majority of my experience was in professional rugby union, having worked with uh, under the national government body of Irish Rugby Football Union. I worked in the, the southern province of Munster Rugby with their academy and 18 players. And I also oversaw their age grade program, um, which is slightly different to the soccer program, football program, as in that they start a bit later. So I would have been working with 16s, 17s, 18s, 19s, 20s, plus their full-time academy structure. And prior to that, various experience across university sports, um, local Gaelic games sports in, in Ireland, um, where I came across lots of different athletes and different genres of um, of positions where I was a strength coach, I was a fitness coach, I was the uh, warm-up coach, I was all sorts of coaching experiences. So that's kind of it in a nutshell um, across the last 19 years of my career. Yeah, it's a, it's a broad background, broad experiences that you, uh, that you bring to the environment. Um, we spoke before um, coming on air today and we talked a little bit about some of the questions you've had over the lockdown um, from s coaches who you know you've spoken to and they've been reaching out to you um i'm interested in how you've seen kind of snc and sports science change since you started your career and certainly over the last eight years since you've been at arsenal um i just wanted to get your opinion on on kind of how things have changed for you and what you see things changing toward in the in the future yeah, that's a, that's a really interesting topic, Ben, because um, I suppose, uh, like many of the listeners, like many of the people in the sporting community, during lockdown, I think it was, um, however bad it was and the reason it happened, there was lots of positives to come out of lockdown. Um, I had lots of 
people from across the world and across various facets of sport reach out to chat with, to ask advice, to from you know young inexperienced coaches starting out to people who were changing career and moving into sports science, strength and conditioning to some of the best in the world at high performance level like yourself who I was picking their brain. So it was a really interesting time, I think, um, this last 20 weeks. And it just got me, I suppose, I became a very reflective, uh, which is something we don't always have time to do. And it just made me look back at my career because um, I turned 40 last, last week and a colleague at work um, asked me, name five of the best things that happened to you in the last 10 years from 30 to 40. And I think it was, that's where it got me thinking a little bit because that's when the last 10 years is when my career really, you know, kind of catapulted to where I am now. And I, and I feel blessed and fortunate to be in the position I'm in off the back of maybe making the right decisions at the right time. People say, you know, you're lucky. Um, I feel the harder you work, the luckier you get that when an opportunity comes up, you're ready. Um, so how do, how do thing, how has things changed in the last 10 to 15 years? Well, I think strength and conditioning as a, as a, as a job, as a formalized job, if you want to put it in that bracket as a, as a career path, it's still quite new. Maybe the last 10 years has seen the growth of that, that, um, that position. Back along, if you read any of the sports science, like um, any of the, the, the old text books from you know, the, the German blocks and back along in Eastern European training methods, and there was always the strength coach, fitness coach, or fitness preparation person. There was always that position. But to be, it's only in the last 10 years that that, those aspects have all come together to create what I would call a strength and conditioning coach. And I suppose the Americans and Australians led that very early on with, with the formalizing an association, formalizing accreditations, etc. Um, when I started out 18, 19 years ago, there was very little material available. Um, it was in the era of um, compact discs, very slow internet speed. Um, sharing of books and manuals was a big thing, photocopying and I sound like a dinosaur to some of the younger listeners out there, but it's not very, not very long ago. Um, you know, <laughs> trying to get your hands or getting in contact with quality individuals to pick their brains was quite difficult because there wasn't a, a lot of them around. Um, it was a growing profession. Um, fast forward to, I suppose, when I started in Arsenal, uh, strength and conditioning in football has become a really, really big area. And I suppose over the last eight years, how I've seen it grow is it's it's gone from the specific area of having a football fitness coach which is a kind of a very european thing to now having real generalists in the academy structure and first team structure who can take a warm up do a rehab session do a mobility session do a recovery session download gps do a strength session and that's where the profession has kind of gone that it's become very generalist um because the the profession uh, has demanded that uh, I know in the States, certainly there's a lot of specialists within within sporting organizations. You're going to have a strength coach. You're going to have a power coach, a uh, speed mechanics coach or a sprints coach. Um, but in, in the European sports, I think it's quite difficult to do that because you need to be a generalist and work across all facets within the club. Um, lately, I've seen, I suppose, in the last five, four or five years, with the you know the technology moving at a rapid rate, um, we've become very data driven. We've become um, yes, the data underpins everything we do in sports science and in sports performance. Um, the some would say that data is the only truth, um, but for me, it's experience and context with, within the data and using the data is key. And I think that's going to be the real uh, driver going forward for the development of the of the, the profession. Um, certainly I've seen a lot more non-traditional strength-based sports starting to strength train starting to really see the benefit of and that would be football certainly football um, some other sports like um, netball volleyball that I've seen that I've chatted to across the UK some of the experts in that field and the growth in strength training within those areas as a means for performance improvement but also robustness and injury prevention um, which might sound bizarre to people because a lot of listeners will understand the benefits of strength training, but still trying to get that across the line in a lot of sports uh, where the technical coach might be that little bit older and has an opinion based on what they knew from a number of years ago. 
uh, that is still quite a challenge. I think it's still quite a challenge for any strength and conditioning coach in a team-based sport right now to um, get ideas like that across across the line. So the, the new S&C coach I'm seeing now, and probably in the last eight years, I've, I've interviewed probably 150 to 200 uh, coaches looking for positions within our club. We've had lots of, we're blessed with a department that um, is run by Des Ryan and, and we've got fantastic buy-in financially and security-wise from the, the, the academy management team who believe in what we're doing, um, which has afforded us uh, some very strong positions to offer people. Um, for instance, our internships are paid internships. We don't see them as an intern. We see them as a, an underground coach learning their trade. And we want to reward them for that. So the, the 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 application process is stringent. But what I've seen over the last eight years is we've gone from practical based coach who's in front of you and is engaging with you with the sound master's degree knowledge or um, UKSCA or CSCS um, certifications who have done their reading, done their research, done their their education as well as got their experience to to now uh, the younger coach coming in is very data-driven, um, wants to present to you their latest Excel sheet that they've developed for monitoring or for prescribing those. But then when it comes to the practical elements, you're, you're asking them to you know train what's in front of them, look at the dysfunction of this athlete, take them through a basic level of certain exercises we prescribe, and the engagement sometimes falls down a little bit. Um, and that's for various reasons, I think. Um, the... The industry has really become saturated within the last two to three years. I think across all health and fitness facilities slash strength and conditioning performance facilities, I think everyone now is a strength and conditioning coach, um, which has saturated the market. So the jobs are few and far between. And um, I think certainly for me, um, I want good people that I can nurture that can nurture me that can help me that we can help each other coming into the building uh, knowledge is important uh, education is important but certainly your ability to engage with staff and athletes i think is key and i don't think that has changed in in 20 years um one of the best training condition coaches i worked with um wasn't hadn't the biggest qualifications he hadn't the what, what i would say is world leading certifications but he could get players to go through a brick wall for him because of his engagement, his empowerment of both the players and staff. And his programming was brilliant basics, but it was on point and the players just got better and saw themselves getting better just through sheer application and hard work. So I think that engagement is very, very important. And the new S&C coach almost needs to have a huge amount of diplomacy skills. And um, when you're dealing with trying to integrate your philosophy now into a new position and a new sport that you've joined and a technical coach or the head of the technical department is looking at you going, tell me how you're going to benefit my players and my athletes. That's a very, very important skill to have is that cohesion and negotiation skill to get your thoughts, opinions across the line and get buy-in from coaches and players. Absolutely. Um, Yeah, I couldn't agree more with that. I think, you know, a lot of a lot of stuff gets lost in data. I think it has its place and is extremely useful. Um, I spoke to Phil Glasgow the other day, who's hopefully going to come on the podcast um, sometime soon. But he was talking about, you know, we create a number of dots, but it's about finding people who can join those dots. And, um, you know, I'm interested in that for you guys. I mean, You've got a lot of information from screening, from monitoring, from you know long-term athlete development information. What what are the kind of benchmarks that you that you use to show you know is someone developing into like a world-class soccer player? So if we go a bit more into now some of the the, the detail um, around what you do, I, I love that analogy connecting the dots that makes complete sense to me and before i move on to your question there ben the data is so important for us uh, i'm not dissing the data I'm, I'm looking at how it's delivered and how it's seen by yeah. by coaches at the moment um we're, we're a lot of coaches that i see are almost looking for the next piece of monitoring equipment that can give me that that next one percent i'm looking at the 99 percent that we're not looking at in enough detail 
So to answer your question there, um, how do we benchmark? Our benchmark is the first team players on our facility. They're, they're our benchmark. Premier League first team players. Um, we have a very good relationship with the performance department there, uh, which should be the case, but isn't always the case in clubs. Um, and we get regular access to their data. We have regular workshops with those staff to, to really highlight to us what, what are the demands of the sport? What are the demands of that player week to week in a training and a performance setting? And how do we get to those levels and those thresholds? And we work back from that. And the first thing we start with, I suppose, if we want to talk about um, thresholds and bandwidths, we start by looking at really GPS data uh, for pitch-based loadings and um, for monitoring of that training load. And that's, a, that's been probably one of the most important aspects for us is our GPS because that gives you the real demands of the sport there and then. And we've got under 23 players now that need to be ready to play two 90-minute games every four days. So how do we get them ready for that? Well, we pair back and periodize our plan back off the basis of what does a match look like from many different metrics. And it doesn't matter what system you use. I'm not going to plug any particular GPS system right here because there's there's differences in all of them. But um, we, Other we brands use, are available. <laughs> other brands are available. We use four or five metrics that mirror the first team's metrics. And then we work off that to, to meet those demands. So we look at first team training, first team games, and how do we mirror that? But that has to be in a safe and progressive manner because I could have a 16-year-old who has to get ready to train with the first team. So I need to be very careful how I load him and, and how I get him ready. And it has to be progressive. And that starts with an understanding from the technical staff and the performance staff that, okay, this is going to take a little bit of time. Is he a quality individual that you're looking at long-term? Yes. Or is he cannon fodder? If he's cannon fodder and he's just making up positions that you need for training, then that's a different story. So we use GPS live um, in all training sessions. Across the week, um, and this is only general, across a week, we'd look at probably, if you're looking at total volume and distance, you're looking at about two and a half to three times that that value of a game. High speed running the same two and a half to three times, uh, um, which is over 5.5 meters per second. That's a big one for our hamstring injury prevention and, and robustness. The zone six, which is your three-quarter pace, if you want to use that term, we're looking at probably two to two and a half times a game data of that. And we do need to expose our players to maximum speed, um, maximum accelerations, where they're opening up over 40, 50 meters at least for four reps a week so that we're exposing them to what can occur in a game. Back along from that, our monitoring then really begins with wellness and, and uh, performance-related monitoring. And the boys would do that twice per week. So they do it the day before a game and two days after a game where we're looking at markers like uh, hydration, um, neuromuscular fatigue through four stacks and jumps. We're looking at the groin bar. So we've got the groin bar now, which is a fantastic tool. So we're looking at adductor, abductor screening because the nature of soccer, football, you get a lot of groin, hip um iliosaurus issues uh we're looking at knee to wall for ankle and foot stability then we'll look at we were using a perceived onset of mood state questionnaire but actually we were finding that was becoming quite autonomous the boys were just kind of filling it in ad hoc giving the same score every day whereas when you're in their face looking at their groin squeezes or their jumps or those other activities you're that's informing your, the informal conversation with how are you feeling you look a bit stiff there you look you losing a little bit more ability in your ankle is it just sore or is it an issue and then we can refer them to the physio um so they are daily markers and um they kind of inform us of how they're adapting to or how they're coping with training um we've got bandwidths and all this now from years of data so before we had the groin bar we were using a blood pressure cuff which i'm sure lots of people have used and we knew that anything sub 300 was an issue for most players um and now with the groin bar, we can look at asymmetry and we can look at peak force, all the, all the other lovely bits, which is where our data has been really, really good and really improved, particularly from a return to play uh, position. Um, of late, we've started assessing the prone ISO hold on the um, Norboard. So we're looking at isometric hamstring strength. And um, that's been really interesting. Uh, we're finding an anecdotally uh, correlation between poor groin strength and poor hamstring strength in the same boy, um, which is informing us of, of, of other things. And, and I suppose any of the physios like yourself out there will understand that physiology. That they are connected. So if a boy is complaining of sore groins, is, is it coming from the hamstring or is he the glute or is he 
uh, is, it, is it a compensation from somewhere else, etc. So they've been really interesting um, things we're looking at that inform us. And then day to day, I suppose the monitoring of training load. We use obviously our GPS. We use we still use the old um, time and RPE for session session workload acute load units, which still holds true in lots of ways when you educate the boys because not every club or not every group in our club. Uh, particularly with the younger boys, have GPS. So we want them to get used to prescribing in their in their eyes what that training looked like. Uh, and all those bandwidths are based off all those bandwidths are based off the boys' worst case scenarios, so based off his game data and his best scores. So across data, your data um has to be based on your players. Um, I could give you loads of examples of what a winger for the under 16 should look like in speed strength power grind bar nordboard but that's not the true yep. picture um we gather information across 10 12 14 weeks and then you have a clear picture of what your what's good bad and ugly for that player uh, and then it's very individual based on his his monitoring um three times a year we will do performance testing uh, which is always very interesting um we do it at the end of pre-season um, which sometimes is debatable. A lot of people would say, why don't you test uh, pre-season? And I can get into that further. But we test at the end of pre-season. Generally, it's going to be or after our first few games. So it's generally going to be September, January and May. Now, they're um, Premier League requirements as part of a national benchmark testing uh, program that they're running where we can compare our athletes to the athletes across the other Premier League clubs. Um, and that's very, very interesting for us. Now, because they are developmental athletes, and this is a lovely discussion we always have with our staff um, and for, for the boys, Ben. Uh, you know, if we test in September and then we test again in January, the coaches, the players are going, oh, have they improved? And for me, the biggest thing to look at is not the window since the last testing, but year on year. So January to January, September to September, May to May, for me is far more important because it's longitudinal and I can't control what happens to a team this September and this January, or I couldn't control what happened between last September and what January with, regain, with, with regards to match fixtures, um, tournaments, games, how many games a boy would have played. So if you're looking for improvements in speed and power, and we know that's neuromuscular, heavily based st- central nervous system activities, they are very dependent on fatigue, freshness, preparedness. Um, so often, often people can be disappointed after... 10, 12 weeks of training that speed and power have not improved or they've stayed the same. Well, you have to look at it in context and then look at it from the previous year. So has that boy across 12 months improved? Has that player across 12 months or, or a season improved? And for me, that's a bigger picture um, with our testing. And that's very interesting. So in, in the in the testing, we will do uh, acceleration, 0 to 10 meters. We do maximum speed, so we go 0 to 30 meters. We do counter-movement jump, squat jump, which gives us elastic index. Um, then we will sometimes do the yo-yo test, intermittent recovery level one. Uh, depends on the time of year, if the boys have had a lot of training load in their in their body from games and stuff. I find the risk versus reward of a fitness test in the middle of the season. Sometimes um, you don't get large numbers in the test because sore backs, sore groins, sore hips. Um and it's on an indoor astral surface, which we're not used to. So we, we have to be careful with that. And then on, on top of that, we would do 3RM bench press, uh, max chins, and we do a lower body 3RM test, uh, whether that's depending on the athlete. That could be back squat, it could be front squat, it could be a hex bar deadlift or a split squat, depending on their their preferred um, an, an exercise based on their anatomical makeup. So we have a lot of information there to, to, that informs our, our training and our and our targets that and a lot of targets that will push us on and help us periodize our plan for the next stage of that player's development. Man, that's a really uh, comprehensive answer. Thanks. Thanks for that. And, you know, you talked a bit about the sort of zone six and the high speed running stuff. Um, in terms of the gym based markers, I'm sure the listeners will be as interested as I am in this is, yeah. you know, could you, could you give us an idea of what you, what you expect to see from a, from an academy soccer player um, in terms of those those three RMs that you talked about? So, yeah, the, the gym-based markers, they were they were quite, that's an ongoing and what I would like to call an, or, an organic uh, set of bandwidths. 
um, based on training age. So initially when we started here eight seasons ago, uh, our young footballers wouldn't have been exposed to any real formalised strength training as we know it. Um, so we were kind of finding our feet with, uh, with regards to what we felt as a... And these this, this occurred across many discussions and many meetings as to what we felt certain markers would be appropriate. And thankfully, that's changing all the time because as you'd hope it would, that your athletes are getting better each year and you're having to readjust those markers. Um, there was nothing in place when we came here with regards to standards and, and, and markers. Um, so we've kind of had to come up using our experience and our, our testing data as to what would be appropriate for the young footballer. Bear in mind, it's a, it is a strength speed sport. It's a power speed sport. Um, but traditionally, they wouldn't have lifted very often. So we were more... We were more keen to build training age initially before we set targets. So about five years ago, we sat down as youth academy staff and we looked at markers leading into uh, this is from nine. This is from up to under sixteen. So a player that's going into his first professional phase full time in the London Coley training facility, where now he's training with the under eighteens. And we broke it into five little categories because we thought we need to sell this. These are London boys. City born, a lot of them, the majority of them, you know, we needed to talk their language. So we set out um, five phases and we call them foundation, trainer, performer, premier, premier league, and the big one, baller. So we all know baller's the top boy. So um, we broke them into those categories and, and we then we broke them up into a simple exercise index, knee dominant, hip dominant, vertical push, pull, horizontal core, pillar, uh, and Olympic weightlifting, because that was part of our philosophy. So as you progress through, uh, these are only samples and, and not to be taken um, not to be taken as gospel because they have changed since. So then if you're in the Premier, for instance, if you're in the Premier category, so you're almost a baller, we're looking at a bodyweight back squat of five reps. So we were looking safely, what, what can an under 16, a 15, 16-year-old do that has a good training age? And from experience, we were seeing safely, they felt comfortable handling a three or a five or RM. Uh, front squat could be 75% of body weight for five reps. Uh, and then, you know, if you went on to a bench press, we're looking at 0.8, uh, uh, a body weight, 0.8 times body weight by eight, because they're not an upper body dominant sport like rugby or baseball. Yeah. or So their upper body strength didn't really match the lower body strength. Whereas uh, I'm blessed with my cohort of Africa, of, of athletes are generally African Caribbean explosive powerful boys but they didn't have the training age so once we got the training age in it then we could really push the boundaries so we we put in lots of categories like that for instance now you're looking at a baller you're looking at you're hoping that a baller um before he starts training full-time can squat uh one time 1.2 times body weight by three again only markers i've got some boys who are my top players my top athletes who can only do body weight but we set the targets. Um, yep. It's not the end of the world if those targets are not met. As long as my speed and power are, are going up, my jumps, my accelerations, my on-pitch metrics are going up, this is supplement to all that. And that's complementary to all that and building their robust, robustness and their athletic development. Um, they're the kind of markers where we were looking at. Um, and we tried to we tried to pair them and, and balance out the program. I really believe in a balanced program for the youth athlete not honing in on any specific area, but creating a whole balance of multifaceted exercises so that they have a complete toolbox going into their professional phase of their career that if they end up going with the first team and that fitness coach changes for whatever reason, their cohort of exercises that that fitness coach might use might be very different to mine. So I wanted to give that player as many tools as I could and give them variety across their training age so that they're equipped for whatever lay in front of them. So that whole exercise, that index has been built uh, and added to Ben since, and it's actually still ongoing. Um, we're now looking at you know gym-aware technology, and particularly with the Olympic lifts and our power-based exercises, we're looking at bar speed now and peak power really closely because um, they're at a, a comfortable weight now where I've got a number of my under-18s players cleaning um, one times body weight by three. Now, do I push the load in that to get more adaptation? Or do I keep the load the same for a period of time and let them see, see let's see how fast we can move that barbell, creating rate, more rate of force development. So it's a really interesting organic document, really, is the, in a nutshell. 
yeah, and it's in, enabling you to make some key programming decisions, which I think is, you know, what we're what we're looking at when we look at any measure, isn't it? It's trying to identify kind of limitations to performance, trainable deficits, if you like, that then we can implement something to change that that we believe is then going to Im- influence their performance on the field. So, yeah, it's it's great. I mean, I wasn't going to hold you down to uh no. to a specific <laughs> to a specific score, but you know. The context behind this, by the way, for other listeners um, who haven't heard you speak before, I mean, there's there's a, a lot that goes into the the long-term development of these athletes, you know, in terms of their sort of movement competency first and all those other things that you've spoken about on on other other podcasts. And I've I've listened to that intently because it was it was a great background to what we're talking about now. Um I want to uh, I want to go back to something you said which struck a chord with me earlier was that kind of transition so you've got these academy players they're 16 they're you know they're wanting to be premier league they're wanting to be a baller they're probably starting to be used in first team training and then some of those guys will make a successful transition to the first team dressing room and they're still 17 18 years old Um, I'm really interested in what that kind of expertise of working with development athletes and these younger players what things do you think that you can give to people who are working with the senior team that they might not see or that might be blind spots for them to help with that transition from the academy to first team because I think that's such an such a critical phase where often we see athletes can can break down and and become injured yeah that's um I've seen that firsthand how that can go horribly wrong um, on maybe two occasions we've had boys that have gone into the first team training early on um, maybe too much too soon and, and have ended up with pars defects in their back um, and when that happens I don't mind telling you it's it's gutting because that boy has had an opportunity to prove himself and then um, it's fallen back on you that he wasn't ready uh, and that's that's not finger pointing, and uh, it's a great question because that happens very regularly, and it happens in lots of other sports um, where a player is exposed very early on, and can they cope? So, on that, um, to give, and that's a good example, um, a good question because the example I've given that boy who who broke down initially, if you looked at him physically, he looked like a man, like he looked like he was fully developed, he was fully mature, etc. So, and he was one of our most powerful players. I mean, he was incredibly strong and powerful and robust in it, we thought when we went and looked back at our data and the one thing i didn't mention earlier on which is um, hugely forgotten that is one of our founding founding pillars of what we do is maturation assessment and this is key to any youth development player that's transitioning into the first team or into professional full-time sport we assess maturation three to four times a year so i can tell you reasonably accurately where my boy is in a state of growth. Has he gone through peak height velocity? Is he post? Is he pre-post or in that peak height velocity? And then we adjust training and training loads around that. What was interesting around the, the maturation of this boy, when I went back and looked at the data, now this boy was, he was almost 19, so you would think skeletally mature. Um, I've gone back and looked that four weeks to five weeks previous to that, um, and sorry, three months before that, it was his last measurement. So we went every quarter. But in a month, his spine had grown by almost a centimeter. So there was a centimeter of uh, half an inch to three quarters of an inch of growth in his torso in that yeah. three, three-month period. And in that three-month period, we went back and saw that it was one of the most intense three-month periods of his training. So that boy was skeletally immature and not finished. And his training yeah. load had increased. So it was a recipe for disaster that now we can look back at and say, well, that shouldn't have happened. Equally, the handover to the first team maybe wasn't strong enough either where we sat down and, went and reviewed all this information because it happens very, very quickly. Um, I can go in in the morning and I'm being told that player is with us now and, and that's it. Um, so for, for the listeners out there, I think the big thing for the maturing athlete going into the full-time program and that transition, I think, first of all, when that player is coming in, those players coming in, it needs to be a multidisciplinary team meeting and you need to sit and go through every player. And that sounds like really time consuming, but it's very important. 
you sit with the technical coaches, the medical staff, and you go, what is this player's priority? So is this player going to be one of our top players? Is this player going to be a squad player? Is this player going to be sold on in two years' time? What is his priority? So if you've got one of your ballers in there and they go, listen, this kid is a real talent, then we need to be very patient with him and we need to explain and chat with the first team performance staff and technical staff and have that relationship where we go, it's going to take this kid time. And we have to look at all the data. Is he ready physically to go over or is he not ready physically to go over? And that's a big question. And that comes from educating the coaches and educating your staff in the areas of load management and maturation. Because the biggest thing for the growing athlete is they can they can handle intensity. They can't they can't handle volume. Volume and time on feet is the big one for those young athletes. And if you can sell that idea to the coach where you're not pulling that player from training or from first team training, but rather can you reduce the amount of work they do over there, then you can have that player for longer. And I think that's a big conversation to have, particularly for the, the growth-related injuries that you're getting from overload. Um, and then... You have to understand that if he is a talented player, everyone wants a piece of the pie. So I want to get my strength and power work done. The first team will want him to be in every training session. And you just have to, again, sit down and prioritize what is his priority. Is his priority 12 months time, he will be training with the first team full time and hopefully making his debut in the Premier League. Or is he uh, what we call a stocking filler? He's a good squad player who is making up training numbers. Well, you don't want to put any player at risk, whether he's a mediocre, average, or quality player. Um, and that's a big one for me is assessing your maturation, having that data ready when you, and he's training loads. And you could, this is where our GPS comes in uh, hugely, Ben, is that we can say to the first team staff, this is his training to date. I've looked at your training. He's about 80% of that value, or he's 90% of that value, or he's overcooked that value. So he's ready. Um, and again, it's close monitoring of that player when he goes over there. Um, I've seen it myself working with first teams in other sports that that young academy player comes in and there's this kind of unfortunately there is this kind of mindset and I'm sure it happens in other sports that okay he's in now he's going to do everything if he wants to be part of this team he's doing all the extra running at the end he's doing all the technical drills he's doing that crossing and finishing exercise with the coach at the end because if he wants to be part of this first team training group he needs to do everything well that might not be appropriate and you're exposing that player to work that maybe is far too much of him right then because we're finding it is quite difficult to bridge that gap. You're looking at a first-team Premier League player there uh, in the current Arsenal squad who's a season pro. He could have played 35, 40 Premier League games last year. Our under-18 player hasn't done that. He could have played 10, 15 uh, under-18 Premier League and Youth Cup games. That's not meeting the demands of Premier League first-team football. So we just need to be very careful on that. For me, one would be player priority. What is that player priority? Two education of the coaches technical staff all together on where that player is at using your load monitoring your maturation your gps information and more importantly the training age so i've had boys come in from different countries um, as key talents they come from ajax uh, romania spain barcelona um, or he's a key talent he's going to be training with the 18s and 23s but he's going to be a first team player uh, 12 months down the road that player has come in with very little training age a talented player with very little training age, suddenly their training demands go up and then you have trouble because that player can't cope. So you have to look at the training age of the player coming in as well. And that's very important. So people might say, well, if he's with Barcelona, uh, why, wh- how, can, how can we not cope with under 23s and first team football in, in the UK? The Premier League is the physically the most demanding league in the world. Probably still is, Right. That Spanish kid, and from talking to him, I know he does lots, did play lots of games every week. So he's never really getting, the game doesn't prepare you for the game, if that makes sense. He's yeah. not getting enough exposure to strength, power, speed, qualities to make him physically better. He's, he's bouncing from game to game to game. So technically, and I suppose tactically, he's superior, but physically he's breaking down because now I'm adding in strength training or the training load, the daily training load is higher than it would have been. Um, so that becomes a problem. So it really is keeping an eye on the data you're gathering and really assessing that in a, a very formal way with the staff you're handing that player over to. Because that transition can make or break a player because they get one chance, unfortunately, because um, the demands are so high. You've seen it, Ben. They get one crack over there 
Um, if he's pulling a cart and he's not able to move, then that's a problem. Or technically, if he's not very good uh, and he's been put in at the wrong time, that's a problem. So it really is education and collaboration with your first team staff. Yeah, I think you've hit every nail on the head there, mate. It's um, it's something that I, I sort of consider as like discount almost. You know, some, sometimes the data doesn't even show you, uh, you know, that there's a car crash waiting to happen, you know, until you, with hindsight, go back and look at these things in a bit more detail. And you know, it's very difficult to live and die by all of those numbers. Um, so that a really good process where you've got this interdisciplinary team set up which has a real kind of eye for this this transition either from academy to first team or as you described from another club environment with different training methodology you know though both of those i've seen it as, as well you know really guys who look robust as we describe it um breaking down and just innocuous uh, reasoning behind it but you almost have to just give them a little bit of a cushion when they're making that change whether it's an arbitrary 10 percent, 20 percent of their training loads or gym loads as you say it's um it's it's probably a a challenge that faces a lot of people um mate that's that, that's fantastic and you, you also said something there that's quite current because you talked about you know bouncing from game to game when you were describing some of those players well the world we live in at the moment is we are we're all bouncing from game to game because of the fixture congestion so that's you know something i was thinking about when you were talking there was you know how do you how do you get in the strength work when you when you play two games every four days in a, in a under 23 player how how do you go about that because i think that would be useful for for the listeners as well as for me uh, that's uh, yeah that's the real world at the moment um and that kind of ties in with the transition the transition question. Um, one thing I failed to mention was the athletic development program. So the athletic development program is key for that young player and that is consistent, progressive, and constant. And when I say constant in their life, something that's part of their program every week. Appropriate, appropriate loads and appropriate volume. But by the time they get, if they transition into the first team squad, then that first team squad, and he's a regular in that squad, they're looking at games and performances and competitions. So that athletic development might not be there because you're, you're looking at the next game. Whereas in the younger, younger age groups, from 23 is down, it's very important that that training base is built very early on. And uh, another transitional problem that I see is from part-time football to full-time football. So you're under 16, you're in school, you're a talented Arsenal player, but yes, now you're becoming full-time. There's your full-time contract. Now you're training five to six days a week. So that's been a transitional um, minefield as well. But how are we dealing with um, lockdown or uh, congestion fixtures? We've built over the last eight seasons a good training age across the, the cohort of our players. So minimal dosage for them is probably a big session for those that don't have the training age. So at every point in the training week, if they've got a number of games, we, we will get our lower body exercises in. Sometimes that's post-training, um, straight after training. Sometimes it's a standalone gym-based session. So a lot of our athletic development is done um, in in isolation. So we would do our power stuff before we go onto the pitch, do the pitch session, have lunch, and now do gym. So we do a whole body session or a lower body session or upper body session, depending on the priority for that day. That's changed because now of covid restrictions and time on site they are literally having to come off the pitch get in load and leave after lunch because of numbers on site and the risk reward for timings etc so we've i have personally my some of my colleagues uh, might disagree on this and this is you know we're all different um i've paired my program right back to the what i call brilliant basics so what are the fundamental movements in that person's program that is going to keep some load and some stimulation for the nervous system and for strength. And, you know, if I was doing a lower body session before lockdown and it was after lunch in a scenario where I had that rest before we do the session and it's a standalone session, you might do back squat, RDL, split squat, single leg RDL, a groin exercise, a calf exercise, uh, core exercises. Now I don't have time to do that. 
So I look at what's my biggest bang for buck right now that I can condense into 20 to 30 minutes. And thankfully, we're at a stage with my athletes where I can still put in a reasonable amount of volume. So like four four sets of six or four sets of five for uh, my players isn't going to leave fatigue on them, I'm finding, because they have that training age. Um, it's minimal dosage, but still getting... Um, getting the stimulus I need. And then when you get that break in fixtures, then you can go back and add in the more auxiliary lifts in there and the additional, I suppose, um, the the add-ons to that, the extra work that's going to make, you know, fine-tune those areas. But that's what we're doing at the minute. It's pretty much off the pitch, straight into the gym. They might grab a protein shaker or some energy bar on the way just to keep some some sort of fuel in them. Uh, and it's 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 a twenty five to thirty minute session then um, of of the base what I call base loading and we still get our upper body in and the upper body is key as well to keep balance within the system even though it's not an upper body develop you know dominant sport but we're we're just having to pair things back um, I think everyone is any club I've talked to in the Premier League any of the colleague my colleagues in in other clubs they're pretty much in the same scenario. Um, and it's it it for me it all boils down to training age, Ben. If they have the training age, you can stimulate them. And uh, I'm finding actually in this period that our work pre-training is almost more important than our work post-training. So I'm getting a lot. I'm keeping a lot of my power work in. So for any of the listeners that don't know uh, how I program, I would do my power work prior to going out to pitch. Um, generally, it'll be on our max speed days or our change of direction agility days. So I'm um, my young boys are snatching, cleaning, um, multi-directional hurdle hops or box jumps and overhead med ball work or you know power based uh, multi-velocity work. So I work the whole spectrum of force velocity within that session, and that's a twenty-five minute, thirty-minute little hit before they go out onto the pitch. And one, it's potentiation, but two, I'm actually getting, I'm finding anecdotally, I'm getting some very good development in that period of time because they're fresh. So our, our snatch numbers and our clean numbers are going up. Our the med ball the boys are throwing is getting heavier every couple of weeks, um, which is brilliant to see. Whereas my numbers in the gym post-training might be staying the same and going up a little bit slower because obviously they've, they're neuromuscularly fatigued from the session. So I'm finding the prep work in the morning and whatever your philosophy is as a coach out there, that might be you know, running mechanics, it might be lower-based, high-velocity, power-based work, lots of plyos, med ball work. I'm finding that window is key right now when you can't load them to the volume we'd like to load them. Yeah, it's nice to hear that you're getting that development still, even in this kind of, you know, difficult difficult environment, really. Um, and certainly, you're not just maintaining athletes, you're, you're actually getting something more out of them, which is, which is fantastic. I think the other thing to say, it's a bit needs must at the moment for all of us. And, and it probably, uh, it's probably pre- preparing those academy athletes for, for normal first team timetables where they come in from the pitch, the cars are still running and then they, <laughs> they lift the weight in the gym, they lift the weight in a gym and off they go, you know, that's yeah, um, preparing, absolutely. preparing them uh, for what's to come. <laughs> Absolutely. And that's, and that's the nature of professional sport. So again, going back to training age and athletic development early in their career, Ben, that, that answers that question and you're spot on. That's key for the younger player because when they go into a first team, whatever the sport is, the, the, the window for development is very narrow. So um, you need to make the most of what you can early on. So I think it's the same for everyone right now. It really is. Yeah, taking the opportunities when they arise, you know. So I think a conversation up front with your team that if someone gets a suspension and they have a, a normal training week, then you can hit their key areas as an individual, you know, where otherwise you wouldn't have had that opportunity. Um, and I suppose the other thing is the timing, right? As you say, it's, it's not ideal, but you have to micro dose in something at the right time to, to at least make sure that, that, you know, competencies and other things don't drop off, but, yeah, it's great Great to hear. And, and on that microdosing, that. just to add to that, Ben, the key with the microdosing, and you're spot on, that's exactly a word I would use, it's consistent. If it's consistent, it doesn't leave fatigue. It doesn't blunt adaptation. You know, it, it, it'll help adaptation. It'll help recovery and robustness. But if it's dropped in intermittently and taken out, that's when you get problems. That's when you get your spikes. 
So if the, the program is consistent and progressive, even though even, even if it's small and you don't have a lot of time, and this is advice I give young coaches out there who say, oh, we, we're not giving much time for strength and conditioning. It doesn't matter. Use that time appropriately, but use it consistently. It's when, and then as you say, when you get periods or, or time window frames where there's time to uh, get more work done, then you can do more work. But if you're dropping it in and pulling it out, that's when the player doesn't adapt. And that's when you get stiffness, soreness, that almost goes to the player i'm not doing rdls after the pitch again it's killing me <laughs> yeah and that's 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 exactly it's exactly what we we see you know uh, i'm not doing my posterior chain work today why not because i'm sore well how long since you've done it well <laughs> you know way more than 10 to 12 day window which we'd like to see people do something and then that's just a vicious circle isn't it um yeah, absolutely. it just continue continues to go they 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 deteriorate. They're not prepared, and then you know the the next the next uh, step on that downward spiral is unfortunately that they come in with something that's a time loss injury. Maybe it's one to two days, but it's still based around not developing this uh, this kind of ability to produce force consistently. I think, and, and the double edge of that, then that player is you know meets the coach at lunch. The coach goes, "Oh, how are you? Oh, I'm a bit stiff. Why are you stiff? Oh, I done RDLs yesterday after training. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Then you go, oh, oh." Then the player, the coach is looking at you going, what's he done? <laughs> so consistent, consistent and progressive, like any other training modality. It has to be consistent, progressive. Mate, brilliant. Um, Paulie, I've, uh, I've thoroughly enjoyed Likewise. this conversation Likewise. with you. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's great to speak to you. Um, and uh, I just think before we, before we sign off, um, for those listeners who kind of, don't know where to find you is there a place that people can can get hold of you i'm on uh, i'm on twitter is my main platform um I, I try to just kind of retweet or like stuff that i see a value there i don't make a lot of comments on there um club policy we, we have to be very careful with and you know putting any videos or information of our players up there but certainly you can catch me there and direct message me there if you have any questions that it's uh, at coach underscore roach underscore um cheesy i know <laughs> or if any listeners you know want to reach out i have no problem um uh, it'll take time to get back to you i promise that but i will get back to you <laughs> it's uh p roach at arsenal.co.uk that's p-r-o-c-h-e at arsenal.co.uk for anyone that has anyone any questions i promise i'll um try and get back to you as soon as i can that's brilliant um yeah, we'll put that in the uh, in the show notes for the episode. But Pordy, once again, uh, thanks for taking some time today and your busy schedule to uh, to speak to us. And uh, I've really enjoyed it. And um, yeah, we'll we'll catch up soon, mate. Thanks. My pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you. Big thanks to Pordy for coming on and being an incredibly transparent, informative, and just a really interesting practitioner to listen to talking shop. He'll be undoubtedly a asset to Arsenal and also our industry. Thanks for listening to today's episode of the Informed Performance Podcast with Ben Ashworth hosting today's show. Tune in next week for more performance and sports medicine insights.